You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Yes, welcome again for another Phys Ed Podcast. Hey, glad to have you again for another chat around science and STEM and all that sort of thing. And this week you're talking about science communication itself, what makes it work and what makes it not work so well. See, no matter where you are, if you can be an educator in any sort of formal or informal institution or a researcher, talking about science is so important and importantly, the audience has to understand what it is you're talking about. And Dr. James O'Hanlon very much has a lot of experience about this. You see, he's the founder and director of In-Situ Science, which is a registered charity which is dedicated to science outreach and community engagement. And you just might have heard of James before through the In-Situ Science podcast, where he hangs out with a lot of researchers and not only hears about their research, but also what is driving them to do the research in the first place, their passions, their interests, and the stories that makes the science behind the scenes. And so uh, James, by the way, is a researcher, so we actually do get to hear about his work in insects and spiders, which is fascinating, by the way, especially if you love your ecology, but we do talk about science communication, and it will help you no matter how you're trying to do it. So uh, let's get right into it. This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech, and more. To see 100 fun free experiments you can do with your class, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments. Thanks so much for having me. Mate, I'm very happy to have a chat with you because, gosh, you've been getting up to a lot of things over the last few years. Um, I'm trying to work out which hat you wear. Okay. <laughs> Currently, I can't even answer that question. Currently, it feels like I have sort of multiple personalities floating around there and you have to spring one forward at a moment's notice and then put it away again and bring up the other one to... Sounds like a true science communicator. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially now in in the era that we're living in, work life and home life too is just being melded together again and you have to find yourself putting on your domestic hats yeah. <laughs> it is actually, actually everything else it's it's good fun but mind you though i mean i think everyone has actually handled that quite well um i mean in amongst trying to sort out all the tech stuff but once all the tech stuff was sorted uh i mean you kind of go okay the purple block means i'm talking to this person and the green block means i'm visiting this person and the yellow block means i'm talking etc you can kind of fit it amongst it you can do a lot from your home yeah and particularly being scientists and science communicators the stuff we do we can do from home and the stuff we do is very, very self-motivated. We, we, we organize our own schedules and our own priorities pretty well. And I think mostly what's been keeping lots of us in the office is probably just guilt <laughs> <laughs> and, and looking like you're showing up and looking like you're, you're doing your job to the people around you. And hopefully this period in time has changed things up quite a bit where organizations, universities, museums, all that stuff uh, will be more open to people working from home and be more trusting of people working out of the office. Actually, there's a lot of, um, and it's not just ad hoc research, there's been a fair bit of the research around this sort of thing. And the uh, people that can be actually more productive <laughs> offsite because there's less interruptions. There's, yeah. You, you can, yeah, it all depends. I mean, it's not for everyone, but certainly what's the case. So in case you're listening and go, hang on, are we talking, are we talking about <laughs> working from home or not? But no, there's still a science podcast still. We, uh, we're definitely going to go into that. And um, but it's just, just curious because it, it is a, 
it is an interesting world this year, but um, it will keep on going as we go along. Anyway, so uh, James, I know you do wear a lot of hats, but I mean, okay, right. So what are some of the hats that you wear? So people sort of give them an idea about that. Uh, I guess the, the hat that most people might be familiar with is my researcher hat. So I study animal behavior. I work on things like insects and spiders. So in the past, I've worked on things like how ants disperse tree seeds, how they pick up tree seeds, bring them underground, essentially planting forests for us. Yep. I've worked on, uh, I think, color-changing grasshoppers that live up in the snowy mountains. Oh, they're cool. I did yeah. that in the last, in my third year at uni. They're really cool. What else have I done? I've got all sorts of things. I guess my main uh, projects in the past have been around cool-looking praying mantises. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of a creature called the orchid mantis spin. Oh, they're cool. Yep. If I always just tell people, just, just Google them, people will come up and, and you'll get it. Essentially, they're a praying mantis that looks like a flower and it lives in the rainforests of Southeast Asia. It's this rare, elusive animal and people have always looked at it and gone, I wonder why it looks like a flower. And I looked at, at that and went, I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to study this. <laughs> oh, you should vi video it. I was actually thinking my wife works with a bloke who, um, I, I, it skates me now the name of this spider. I hate this, but this tiny little cute little colorful spider that went crazy viral around the world because it does cool little dances. Peacock yeah. spiders. You're, you're talking my language here. <laughs> yeah. So cool. He, and she knows the bloke that actually did, did those YouTube videos. Oh, oh, it's funny. I was actually just talking about peacock spiders with someone else the other day and yeah, they did go completely viral a little while ago, and now I feel like I feel like this is the best uh, public relations story that spiders have had in a long time. Like now, whenever people think about spiders, they don't think about huntsmen under their bed necessarily. Their brains often go to these little peacock spiders that they have seen on a documentary or seen on YouTube and, and things. I and mean, I, as a big spider fan, I'm hoping that this is going to be. A turning point for spiders. I was, I was talking with someone who was kind of saying, yeah, you know, nobody really cared about whales and, and saving the whales until somebody recorded whale song. And it was this beautiful story about how whales sing to each other. And it, it just heightened, uh, I guess, the, the, the beauty and the allure of these animals. Hopefully, peacock spiders are going to do the same thing for spiders. And spiders are not going to be Halloween decorations anymore. They're going to be everybody's favorite household companion who knows yeah anything that gets rid of mosquitoes is good in my book <laughs> but i feel i feel kind of bad because there are people who do a lot of research <laughs> mosquitoes as well as all sorts of interesting stuff but the but the for me it, it is very much the case i mean keystone species are a thing and um it, sometimes it is the colorful pretty cuddly furry little creature that actually saves a wider ecosystem it's, it's a good thing yeah um, and this is kind of have and tying in with my talk about the kind of research I do, that's why I sort of have to follow up uh, my statement of, oh, I just study animal behavior with an explanation of all the different animals that I work on. Because you say something like that and people go, oh, kangaroos, dogs, cats, you, know, <laughs> you must work on parrots, something like that. <laughs> people forget that insects and spiders are animals and very important animals and just as interesting and, and charismatic as, I don't know, koalas or pandas or things like that we just need to to tell these stories and get them out there and what's kind of neat about that is, is sometimes they're incredibly complex i mean the classic version is the the bees waggle dance that mm. whole idea that yeah, yeah they really really can uh, describe quite clearly where something is <laughs> from a food yeah. source 
it's brilliant. And it's, it's really quite cool that people actually notice this. Yeah. And not, not to be a, a naysayer again, but bees are another one of those groups. You know, people talk about bees and uh, how important bees are and save the bees and that kind of stuff. But they always just point to, to honeybees, mm. which again, in Australia are not a native species. Yeah, <laughs> you got, got these so native little ones. Cooler, much more interesting native bees doing sort of the majority of the pollinating and ecosystem services and have all sorts of things going on about them. But again, their, their stories aren't being told. So it's probably no surprise then that a, a person like me with these sorts of attitudes starts research and then goes, actually, I should get into science communication as well. Oh, totally so. I mean, that's definitely what I do want to talk about. And just what, why you mentioned about the native bees. Go, seriously, if, even if you're not in Australia, look at native bees of Australia. Some really cool ones. The one, my favorite is that blue banded one because it just mm. looks cool. The blue banded one, it's kind of orangey. I think that's on my head. Uh, we, we've got this bee poster at home. Yeah, I've got strange posters at home. <laughs> and I always ask my kids, which one's your favorite? And they nearly always point to the blue banded one. Of course, who would have thought the bees can be blue? And they're cute and fluffy. It's, you know, yeah. it's not that hard to sell, really. <laughs> no, it's cool. So obviously, you do a lot of research. And yes, you do a bucket load in animal behaviors, especially around the insect world and the arachnid world and whatnot. So science communication is a thing. It's growing and it's becoming more and more important. So um. I guess my question is, I mean, I think you've already sort of said it. In, so why are you falling into this world more and more? Uh, when, when we're asked this question, we're meant to say things like, oh, because uh, science is so important and we need to share scientific discoveries and make them available to the public and all this nice, warm, fuzzy public service stuff. Of course. <laughs> but behind all of that, I think people uh, that do this stuff do it just because they, they love it. And they can't not do it. <laughs> yeah, you want to spread so, what you do. I mean, if, you, if this is your life's work, you want to tell people about it. Exactly. And, and I don't think there was ever a, actually a choice of going into science communication. It was just something when you're working as a scientist, you just start doing it anyway. You start teaching at universities. You start going to conferences where you give talks about your research. You start uh, getting phone calls from other radio stations wanting to talk about you know, the latest discovery about spiders. And it just kind of snowballs from there and you find yourself doing it more and more. And then you find yourself going, I really like this. I'm going to stop uh, waiting for people to ask me to do it and just start doing it myself and putting your hand up uh, for things. And it's, yeah, it's, it's this weird sort of, uh, agreement you have to make with yourself in your own head that you realize you really enjoy communicating things, but you don't want to, uh, you, you don't want to act like you're an attention seeker, that kind of thing. You don't want, want to act like you're like, Hey, everybody look at me, look at all the cool things I'm doing. You want it to be clear that you're there as an even an evangelist. You just, you just want to share all these stories uh, with as many people as possible and it's about the, the things that you're talking about and if you can talk about them passionately hopefully that rubs off on on other people no it's unreal i mean and this is the thing like i mean going into um some of your work i mean especially around institute science i mean it's done an amazing job and not just commuting just in podcast form i mean you've done stuff with cinema and a few things it's, how did that sort of kick off oh that's a that's a good question <laughs> Uh, it kicked off in a, a couple of different ways. It, like I said, the Institute Science uh, podcast has sort of been the biggest uh, branch of what Institute Science does, and that came about simply because I 
I was a, a little bit addicted to podcasts myself. You know, I, I find myself constantly with a pair of headphones in listening to podcasts on everything from science to art to uh, comedy to sports to whatever my, my interests were. And around that same time, I also just uh, was discovering that I also like talking about stuff. But then also this, and this is going to sound a little bit stupid and obvious. As a scientist, I find myself spending a lot of time talking to other scientists. And no surprise that scientists are actually really interesting people that do really interesting things. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, maybe we should find a way to, to tell these stories. And when I started it up, there are lots of other science podcasts out there, but they're always just about uh, the science. They were making the science accessible. They were breaking down the latest discoveries made into to ways that people could understand them. And that was great. And I thought, no, I'm actually more interested in the people themselves, the people behind these discoveries. And, you know, we can talk about this great discovery uh, that someone made and it comes out in a journal article that, or a newspaper article and you read about this discovery and how important the discovery is. But what that article doesn't tell you is that discovery took a team of uh, 40 people over 10 years doing all separate jobs. And the main investigator had three children in that time. And uh, the reason that they use this particular methodology is because it uh, allowed them to do time-based sampling that would let the league researcher get her kids to sleep in time. And you know, <laughs> uh, behind each discovery, there's an amazing story uh, that isn't being told. And the way I kind of saw that is, uh, you know, you know, whenever you're watching a movie and if you really like a movie, you then go and watch all the behind the scenes yeah. extras and you see all the cool uh, behind the scenes secrets about how this particular effect was made or uh, what this particular actor brought to their role and what their inspirations were. All those stories are, I think, just as interesting as the movie themselves. And I realized we have that in science too. We have all these incredibly interesting stories about how discoveries are made and the people that make them. And those stories aren't being told. And that's why I, whenever I'm writing about what in-situ science does, I often just describe it as we're a, we're a behind the scenes look at science. We talk about actually what goes on behind the scenes, the reality about how discoveries are made. That's so powerful because I mean, I kind of think of um, what happens. I mean, there's a lot of educators listen to this podcast, and the, uh, the reality of the scientific method itself sometimes almost feels arcane <laughs> for some students, <laughs> but also it, uh, to others, it might seem just, I mean, it is a methodical process of you know doing the science, but it almost feels remo removed from a human doing it in some ways uh, to a kid who doesn't mm. really has never really met a scientist potentially or see what actually happens in real research understanding the background story or what they do and you know what they're really interested in a particular sport or they go surfing or they while they're surfing they discovered a weird thing or whatever it is it's those human stories that actually make connection uh <laughs> and would actually really help break down some of the barriers which may have been put up by people's own uh misconceptions and as, as a biologist as a field biologist there, there seems to be a common theme where discoveries are make when you go to take a pee behind the bushes <laughs> <laughs> and an apple falls on your head if it's gravity if you're dealing with physics or whatever <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah i see what you mean especially if you're searching for a rare animal or an elusive animal chances are you'll find it when you've you know you're 
hidden behind a bush and you can't grab it at that point in time. <laughs> Everybody's got a story like that. <laughs> yeah. Mind you, I mean, sometimes you can have a bucket load of things you've never discovered before because you, you pointedly make the research trip out to go to the place that people haven't been to yet. I mean, that's probably a good thing. I'm, the one that's crossing my mind right now is deep sea exploration. I mean, the sort of things that get brought up um, you've never in the Antarctic have never ever been seen before because no one's ever been down there yet in that particular area. It's, it can be really, really cool. And sometimes these things can be groundbreaking. Um, I mean, actually, that just brings a point. Where have you actually done some of your field research? Um, where do I start? <laughs> so most, well, mostly in Australia, I guess. Um, so I started off, well, I'll do this in a bit of a timeline, maybe. I started sure. off as a master's student studying Australian praying mantises, uh, and they are all up in the uh, far north of Australia. So I was traveling all around far north Queensland, uh, Northern Territory, wet tropics sort of area. And uh, my PhD was on uh, these orchid mantises. So I was actually doing all my field work uh, for those in peninsular Malaysia. So every uh, three months or so, jumping on a plane, going out to Kuala Lumpur, jumping in a car, driving another four hours to the rainforest and doing stuff out there. Uh, after that, in, in what we call uh, the postdoc phase of being a, a scientist, postdoc phase is a funny phase where you don't just do one project you do about 400 different projects yeah <laughs> so different casual jobs doing all sorts of different stuff and that's taken me all over uh eastern australia really so uh like i said i worked on these color changing grasshoppers up in the snowy mountains i've worked on uh, little tiny toadlets in uh, national parks around sydney the last research project i did on ants took me everywhere from out to the back of Burke, literally the, the back of Burke, out to coastal rainforests of New South Wales, again, back down to the, the snowy mountains and uh, yeah, all, all over the place, really. Um, it's, it's, I actually started off um, wanting to be a scientist, wanting to do marine science because I loved snorkeling and scuba diving and thought I want to spend you know, my life out in the ocean and doing all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I, somewhere along there, I turned to the dark side and became a terrestrial uh, biologist. But, but at some point, I'm hoping to get back to the ocean and do more stuff out there. I, I, I do miss it a bit. Uh, it's interesting. I was actually thinking about um, just the ants themselves. Like, I mean, let's, I mean, I'm, again, thinking from a student perspective. Um, I mean, often when we think about pollination, invariably we think about, like you said, bees and birds and maybe a bit of wind. And yet a lot of our, our native acacias and whatnot, uh, very much ant driven it's like how far how far of a range will these ants sort of travel well it depends on the ant entirely and that's kind of the research that i was doing so I should clarify this particular uh thing i'm talking about is ants dispersing tree seeds so yes ants will pollinate flowers they'll go to the flower grab some uh nectar get some pollen while they're there disperse that about but they also do this really other important role that's kind of forgotten a little bit and that's seed dispersal. So think about something like your, your acacia tree drops a little black seed on that seed as a food reward for the ant. And so it's fancy names an eliasome, but you don't need to know that. They pick that up and the idea is that they carry that seed underground into their nest, essentially planting the seed underground. And this has been studied actually for quite a long time, but people have mostly just been studying 
the, the plant side of things. What's in it for the plant? How do they benefit? What effect does it have on the plant? People have kind of ignored the ants a little bit and what the ants are doing. And depending on the species of ant, they could be you know, dispersing that seed uh, two meters. They could be dispersing that seed a hundred meters. You know, it's, it's, we really don't know. But to sort of, this is a very roundabout way of answering your question, yeah, Ben, sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but what we have discovered, there's something actually quite cool happening uh, with this whole ant seed dispersal system. You've probably guessed that ants, they're little, and yes, they might vary a lot in how much they move seeds around, but relatively, they're not going to move them that much. They're going to move them uh, a couple hundred meters at most. Other plants that are dispersed by other animals, well, they're going to be dispersed by things like uh, birds eating seeds, flying away, depositing them somewhere else. They're going to be dispersed much, much further. So this leads us to this sort of question about, well, what does that mean for these particular plants? Uh, are the ones that are uh, dispersed by ants less, uh, are they more restricted because they're dispersed by ants? They've actually discovered a really cool thing where the plants that are ant dispersed yes, have uh, more restricted ranges, but in the long term, what this means is that those groups of plants are more speciose. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the word speciose. So these particular <laughs> groups of plants have much, much more species in them. They're more diverse. And we think that's mm. simply because of the ants actually restricting uh, their distribution. If you form these little pockets of populations of plants, it means that there's more opportunity for one particular pocket of plants to to diverse of, or to diverge and evolve in a particular direction than a than a separate population of plants. Oh, actually that's, leading to to plant diversity. That's reminding me of almost island biogeography. Sort exactly, of. yeah. It's island biogeography, but happening uh, essentially on land without the islands. <laughs> yes, with little ants keeping them on little islands, almost. <laughs> that's cool. Okay. And this is particularly a huge uh, deal for Australia because, uh, in case you didn't know, we have a stupidly large amount of ants, both in terms of their abundance and their diversity. There's, there's tons of them. Just, just compare this to somewhere like New Zealand. New Zealand, I think, has 11 different species of ant, oh, a different native species of ant, I guess. Oh. Australia, we have over 3,000 and counting. We actually don't know. Right, can <laughs> I actually ask that actually this point? Like, just, I'm really curious. That's a massively different number. And yeah, I know Australia is bigger. And yes, we've got some different, you know, slightly different eco ecological areas. You know, we've got, you know, the tropics through the you know, savannah areas and all the rest. That's a big difference because New Zealand's also got diverse landscape. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's, the, what's the story with that? The short answer is we don't know. Yeah, right, I've got no idea. <laughs> the long answer is it might have something to do with the fact that we're so arid. So there's research that's been done uh, a while ago uh, by an incredible guy called Alan Anderson who looked at the diversity of ants and find that uh, ant diversity, you know, all these different species, seem to be coming from dry, arid inland areas. Uh, and that's a little bit backwards to what we're all taught about how biology works in, in school. You know, we're told that the tropics is where things are. You have to go to the rainforest to see lots of different things and lots of different species. You know, diversity and abundance comes from the tropics. Ants are bucking the trend. You know, if you go, uh, you know, I guess, inland from where I am on the East Coast, the further you go inland into dry, arid areas, the more and more diverse ants will find. 
And this might have something to do with the fact that ants are just more suited uh, to these areas because uh, they're hardy, they can uh, burrow underground and live in colonies underground. Uh, they can use entire colonies to forage from large areas of land and bring food back to the nest. They're not relying necessarily on uh, lots of water availability. They're not relying on there being lush uh, trees and rainforests about them. I think ants can just sort of outcompete other invertebrates in these dry desert areas. So they can sort of take over dry uh, desert areas and there's, there's lots more opportunities for ants to succeed in dry arid areas. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, oh cool. So I love, this is why I love talking with researchers because you usually find out stuff <laughs> you have no idea. That's why you do the research. That's really cool. <laughs> hey, uh, one thing I want to, do, want to mention about um, in situ science, I mean, obviously yeah, you got the podcast and you guys are nailing it. You got, you know, you got your finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards last year. Well done, by the way. Well, that's really Thank cool. Thank you. That was um, pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, bet, I bet. It's quite a competitive <laughs> thing to do. Um, but what I thought was really neat is that whilst you're well known for you know, that, that podcast, you're also involved with Cinema. Now, we were lucky enough to have a chat with uh, the, you know, the team from Cinema to hear about all, all about in a couple of episodes ago, but that was quite, that's quite cool that you've been involved in that yourself. So what did you film and what did you do? <laughs> uh, it's a bit embarrassing because the film we put into Cinema was about me. <laughs> oh, was it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there you go. That's why, that's why it was uh, selected for it, right? <laughs> so uh, it was regarding your background and what you've been getting up to. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and... Honestly, I didn't expect it to go anywhere with Cinema because Cinema is turning into this huge, big, large uh, film festival. Um, and it, it just kind of came about that uh, I, I needed to throw it, uh, together another video for in-situ science. I said that I would do one by the end of the year, essentially. So I had my own little internal goal, but I was just swamped with other work going on. You know, I, sh I should mention in-situ science is still it's a, I do it on a volunteer basis. It's a little side project for me. So it, it's you know, <laughs> uh, finding time on weekends and afternoons to do stuff. So I, I thought, all right, well, I don't have time to go out into the field and make a video about someone else's research or, or do something very uh, elaborate. What I do have is a bunch of footage of animals that I've worked on in the past. I've got a couple of projects going. I'll, I'll film myself talking about these projects and I'll just throw it all together and uh, put it out there. And about that same time that I was putting it out, uh, they were putting a call out for uh, films into cinema. And so I just thought, oh, well, I may as well just throw it in there and, and see what happens. And uh, it, it ended up getting selected. And it got selected for the, the community screening side of cinema. So nice. I was up online and screened at different community events and things, which was great. And I also just really liked that uh, the video itself wasn't necessarily about just science. The video I put out was about how science and art are kind of the same thing and was just me rambling on about how I love doing science and I love doing art. And uh, it's hard for me to decide. Uh, sometimes the lines between the two get a little bit blurred and I'm not sure which one I'm doing. <laughs> but getting that sort of idea out there in that video, I think, yeah, it was quite funny. <laughs> That's really cool though, because it actually makes me think about the number of things that get produced in all sorts of primary schools, high schools, universities and whatnot. You know, there is video footage hanging out there, mm. but unless it's exposed to people, if it's just kept within your classrooms or you know, your small networks, 
that means that people don't get to hear about the things that you've been doing. So it's really cool that you put yourself out there because you didn't have to. You didn't have to put that out there. You could have just you know, you know, kept it to yourself or just dumped it on your website. But putting it out into a competition like that meant that other people actually saw your research and saw what you're about and hopefully got inspired. That's a really cool thing. Yeah, and I think it also just helped me, uh, I guess, solidify some of these ideas I've been having. Like I said, I've always uh, done science professionally and I've always done art and, and making on the side and actually the, the process of going through and making that video actually helped me solidify some ideas in my head about actually why why do I feel compelled to do these two things and are they actually joined in some way or are these just two separate parts of my personality and I guess since having that video out there um, yeah I've been able to actually do a lot more art as opposed to doing more science it's, it's helped me uh, be more creative and, and more productive on that side of things. And, and hats off for that too, because I mean, you are a research fellow at the University of New England. I mean, you actually have a, a day job <laughs> to do. <laughs> you need to be focused on that as well. But putting this on the uh, above is, is going above and beyond. And it's really cool that you're putting that information out there. Um, I've got to ask, what are the next steps? What, what, what can you imagine yourself doing with, I mean, your science communication over the next you know, year, two years, 10 years, 40 years, whatever, whatever timeline you want to throw out there. Um, I'm just, just curious as to what you can imagine coming up uh, over the next few little while. Uh, I'm doing a hell of a lot of imagining at the moment. I'll, I'll take a little bit of a step back. You mentioned that I was a research fellow at the University of New England. Yes. Uh, technically, I'm not anymore. Oh. So, <laughs> okay, so the, the, the you've, conversation in a bit of a different direction. You, you've heard it here first. <laughs> bit of a claim. What, 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 where are you doing now? I so I mentioned were... before that uh, I'm in the, this postdoc phase of being a, a scientist, and uh, some people like to call it the funny money stage. Some people like to call it the, the academic limbo stage. Uh-huh. Essentially, what what scientists do is once they finish their PhD, they're just trying to put themselves out there. Um, trying to get as much work done as possible until hopefully they land on one of these uh, mythical full-time tenured positions where they're a professor in a university and they uh, sit there and work away in their office until they die pretty much. So oh. <laughs> that, that, there you go. That's a good advertisement. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that, that idea of, of becoming that, that full-time tenured uh, university professor it turns out it's it's a reality for many people. It's it's not a reality for most people, unfortunately. And this is sort of, again, another one of those behind the scenes stories of science. I think it's important to get out there. Science is a really dynamic roller coaster of a career. Uh, you, you think you're going to spend your life sitting in a lab at a university working away on one big project for the rest of your life. You're actually, most scientists are freelancers. They're guns for hire. They're doing... 12 different research contracts, they're doing a whole bunch of different science communication contracts, they're doing admin jobs, they're doing all sorts of stuff. And that's essentially what uh, the, the phase of the career I'm in at the moment. Uh, I was on a research fellowship at the University of New England for, for three years, like you mentioned, and now I'm back in the, the freelance uh, gun for hire I was stage about to say that, you beat me to it. I was about to say <laughs> gun for hire, you beat me. It does seem like that. Wow, so you're like a mercenary of science. Yes, and this is where uh, it's. It, I'm going to bring it back to your question about how I see you know, on science and art all coming together. This this time in my career is where having that experience doing art is paying off because I'm actually uh, making a living doing art 
uh, commissions and things at the moment, oh, cool. <laughs> which is quite interesting. So I'm actually so, working well, on. There uh, could be lots of different things. What 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 sorts of works? So at the moment I'm working on uh, actually a children's book uh, that I'm illustrating um, as part of a. It's still science based. There's a, a research program going on here at the University of New England where they're uh, putting together children's books about wetland ecology, so animals that live in wetlands and what they get up to. Uh, so we're currently putting that book together and it will hopefully be uh, getting sent out to schools early next year. Um, I'm doing some uh, science slash art installations for a couple of initiatives around town. Um, and juggling that with some still some casual research work, uh, studying insect behavior, and also a little bit of science communication work, producing podcasts for some other people at the moment, actually. Oh, so fantastic. this sort of brings us back around to how we open the podcast about what hats do you have to wear at any one time? Right now I'm wearing about 12. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, I'm doing things that uh, I really enjoy doing. Um, you know, there, there are times in this, the, the postdoc funny money stage uh, of academia where you, you're having to do things you really can't be bothered doing. You know, you get a casual contract doing some admin work for a department or, you know, there's a whole bunch of assignments that someone needs marking. So you spend a couple of weeks doing that and you're, you're bringing money and you're paying the bills, but the work itself isn't the most fulfilling thing. Right now I'm doing a whole bunch of different jobs and I'm in a really lucky position where I actually really enjoy all of the jobs uh, that I'm doing. So if, if I could keep that stuff up, I have, I'd, I'd quite happily keep doing this for a while. Wow. It, it, it's actually really good though to hear because the, um, I mean, I like it. It's not such a linear progression. In this case for you, it's, <laughs> it's a multinodal tree. <laughs> but, it's, but the idea of, um, it, I mean, it's really good for actually, if you are listening as an educator, please let your students know that you don't end up on this one track for 30 years before you discover the thing and get the Nobel prize. <laughs> the reality <laughs> is that you do all sorts of different things and some concurrently. It's really, <laughs> no, it's really cool. So I lo love that. And so I guess real, that actually leads me on to the next question is, um, right. So we've got some people who might want to do science communication and there are lots of ways to communicate. You can draw it, you can, you know, make podcasts about it, you can video it, you can blog about it, you can do whatever you want. Um, I mean, irrespective of the media that you do your communication of the science, I mean, what would be some um, advice for people starting out going, you know what, I want to communicate science and I want to do it well. What mm -hmm. would you suggest? Um, can I completely reword your question? And Why not? Because it was a jumbled mess anyway. <laughs> you you, you I caged it with irrespective of the media. I have actually come over the opinion that uh, it, that's kind of important um, okay. and that if you want to communicate science, you can do it in the media that works for you because chances are, you know, unless someone offers you a job as a full-time science communicator doing whatever, lots of the science communication you do will probably be uh, voluntary on the side, you know, oh, you know, obviously I'm guessing there's going to be lots of school teachers listening to this you know, It's their job to, communicate science effectively. But if you're uh, a researcher or a science evangelist or uh, working in a museum, something where the science communication is a, a, a passion pursuit, you have to do it in a way that, that works for you. Uh, as an example, you know, when I was getting trained as a scientist, coming up through my postgrad, 
everyone was talking about scientists have to get online, scientists have to have their own websites, they have to have their own Twitter accounts, they have to have their public Facebook accounts. You have to be engaging on social media, starting conversations on social media because that's where everyone is. Things go viral on social media. That's how you get the information out there, all that kind of stuff. And I tried that for a little bit, but at the end I just had to go, you know what, I really don't like social media <laughs> <laughs> and I'm personally not good at it. You know, there are people who get on places like Twitter and they start conversations. Uh, they engage with people, they reach out to people, people reach out to them. It's this, um, they're, they're very good at it in, in that sense. They're using it how it should be used. Then there are other people who really just jump on Twitter every night again and hey, go, hey, look, I did this thing. Look at it. Okay, moving on. I was one of those people. I just didn't, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't very good at it. And uh, I thought, you know what, this, I'm, almost, I'm also a terrible procrastinator. So when I get on social media, I can just spend a whole lot of time just scrolling through nonsense and not getting any work done. So I kind of had to make an agreement with myself that, yeah, social media is very important, but I'm not the person to be doing it. And I find other ways of doing science communication that were uh, my way of doing things. You know, I, I don't like the short sound grab uh, or, or, or tweet style of communication where it's just single statements. I like having long in-depth discussions with people about important topics. So surprise, surprise, I started up an interview podcast. <laughs> yeah. I like art and creativity. So I've done science communication through those avenues. And I think that would be in my advice uh, to people was find the way that you like to communicate and do it that way. Because if you try and force yourself to do it in a, in a different media, you're gonna do a bad job of it and do a, do a disservice to yourself and to the science, I think. If, if your thing is writing, write stories, write uh, newspaper articles. If your thing is music, write songs. <laughs> I was actually talking to um, uh, two friends of mine that have their own company now called Faunaverse and they're publishing books about uh, Australian wildlife uh, in poetry because they love photography and they love poetry. So they're putting together books with amazing pictures of animals and amazing poems about animals. And they're doing great because it's what they do and it's what they love. Can I just ask, is that Dr. Sam Illingworth from UWA? It might be someone else though. No, I know he does a lot of that. Uh, uh, Alexander and Jane Dudley. So people that live out in regional uh, New South Wales, um, doing science outreach and education. And yeah, they're amazing cool. couple. Check them out. Yeah, so I, I agree. Definitely having uh, choose your media, do it well is a important thing. And um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like a scientist kind of get almost like told to a little bit, spoken to, lectured to, so to speak. You should be doing this thing. And um, the reality is, is that they're busy people and got you know work within people's strengths. I agree, agree with that. It almost feels like being told what to do <laughs> in some ways. Um, I mean, I mean, it must be frustrating actually as a researcher going, hang on, but my work is good. And that's what also matters, right? <laughs> so I suppose it's, trying to, it's a bit of a balance, yeah? Yeah, and there, there are definitely some incredible, amazing scientists out there that, let's face it, shouldn't be communicating science. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a point. <laughs> <You know? 'cause>, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're still uh, their managers can be on their back saying, we need you out there, we need you talking to the public and stuff. And it's kind of like, well, no. If their strength is doing amazing science, 
let's, let's let them do that. And if they can't communicate it well themselves, luckily we have a whole bunch of amazing science communicators out there that, that can help them yeah. with that. They can distill the message and get it to the right audience at the right level. Hmm. And that is so important. So let's be honest, as educators, that's our job too. I mean, no point trying to do over-the-top crazy physics to a year three student who still doesn't know how push and pull works. So it's, it's just, you know, you take the time to work, you know, say it in the right vocabulary with the right amounts of syllables to the right people. And also they can understand the concept deeply where you give them a story that they can hook to. It's important. Cool. So no, well, thank you very much. I mean, I mean, you know, it is a busy time for you. I mean, you've got art to make <laughs> as well and science and all the, all the rest. But look, thank you very much for dropping by for this podcast. I mean, look, let's be honest, what you're doing with Institute Science with the team is really cool. I love that you're getting out there and doing this stuff and getting the background information about the research. Because we could just, we could hear about research all the time. I mean, there's plenty of publications that talk about research, but hearing about the scientists themselves, that's a different story. And I think it's really cool. Thanks so much. Yeah. And I guess because like, I know lots of uh, educators listen to this and they want to, to make science accessible to everyone. I had a, a revelation a while ago that uh, ties in with me looking at science behind the scenes. And I realized that all science at, at the most fundamental level is just counting. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> if, you can, if you can count then you can do science. And yeah, there's sorts of fancy ways that you can count things. You maybe you need a laser to shoot at something out into space and count how many blips of that laser come back. You know, maybe you need some sort of special uh, chemical equipment to measure things and count how many peaks on a, a spectrograph there are. But if, if, if we're trying to make science accessible to everyone, I think at the end of the day, if a person can count, they, they can do science. They can count uh, one group of things and then count a second group of things and go, oh, look, that first group's got more than the other group. That's essentially all science is at the end of the day. You know, I've, I've done experiments where there's all this sort of high concept theoretical basis behind it. But on the ground, the, the experiment that I'm doing is just counting how many bees fly to a flower within an hour or how many ants walk up to a tree seed. And, and that's, that's science that a 10 year old can do. And, and, <laughs> you know, that's true. And, and I'm a PhD and, and I'm, I'm doing that exact same thing. So. No, it's good. And also, I mean, because mathematics is a universal language, it means that you can transfer that information. Even if people can't read it so well, they can understand your graph or your table because you're using um, you know, numerals. It's, mm. it, it's a useful thing and throw an equation in there and they can then do the work themselves. It's, it is very important. I mean, so yeah, definitely. Um, trying to get mathematics out to students is that this is actually a really handy tool, no matter what you do. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, some of those kids won't believe you, but the more times you put it out there to show them everything from ordering some food from a shop through to doing research, it all involves counting in some way, shape or form. That's important. Yeah, yeah. To the to the maths teachers listening out there, you are national heroes. I was one of those kids that was plagued by not very good maths teachers in schools, and and failed to show me how mathematics is is the key to understanding the universe. <laughs> and I, find, I think that's a great shame. If if you can get that across to people, thank you. You're doing a great job. 
No, no, and that's why they put that M and that STEM acronym for a very good reason. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Look, look, much appreciated, James. Totally agree with what you're saying. And um, look, well done with, well, honestly, your endeavors, uh, <laughs> plural, <laughs> because you're doing a lot of the cool things. And I'm very curious to see uh, what you get up to over the next little while, because yes, you are in that funny money sort of world, but the reality is, is that we just got to do cool stuff. And you are. I'm also looking forward to seeing what I get up to this time. Oh, interesting. Months. It's like, a, yeah, it really is, it's a choose your own adventure, right? Yeah. You can find out what the story ends up. You can guide it a little bit. And, and like we were talking about before, the whole world is in a state of flux at the moment. And so I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of riding this wave and seeing where we end up. I'm, I'm kind of having fun with it. Yeah, and that's a good place to be. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, James. Have a great one. We hope you've been enjoying the Physics Ed podcast. We love making science make sense. Why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school? If you're outside of Australia, you can connect with us via a virtual excursion. See our website for more. Well, there we go. We just heard from Dr. James O'Hanlon. You can really tell loves his scientific research and his science communication. And it's well worth your time to listen to the In-Situ Science podcast. You know, hear from researchers, hear about not only their research they've been doing, which, by the way, is fantastic and always interesting, but you get to hear about the stories behind it. You know, science is not a linear process. It often takes you in different directions and weird ways and back alleys. And that is an interesting story unto itself. And also, go check out the website that uh, James is involved in. Go to instituscience.com and you get to see lots more resources there. Hey, that is the end of this particular episode of the Phys Ed Podcast. And uh, I hope no matter where you are, no matter how you're communicating your science, that you're doing it effectively, well, and that you've been having fun in the process, because that's important too. So anyway, you've been listening to me, Ben Newsom from Phys Education, and this is the Phys Ed Podcast, and I'll catch you another time. You've been listening to another Physics Ed podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au